I'm Teresa Wezar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, The Surprising Prevalence of Sibling Sexual Abuse, I speak with Nina Bertelli, Research Fellow at University Hospital Berlin. When we think about problematic sexual behaviors in youth, and we've done several episodes of them, we often think of a neighbor child or someone at school, someone acting out in the community with a child of our own. But rarely do we think about sibling sexual abuse, which we think of as somehow very rare. As you're going to hear in this episode, it isn't. It's not uncommon. And what's even more surprising is that it's not just plain doctor. You know, we have all these terms for it, plain doctor, or even terms like you show me yours, I'll show you mine, that really sound like it's all about curiosity. And sometimes it is. But what about those cases that involve coercion, force, penetration, all of which are more common than we'd like to think? When I think back to my time as a CAC director, some of the most difficult cases we had were sibling sexual abuse cases. Mom and dad would come in horribly upset. You would have one child who was the victim and they wanted to support that child. But at the same time, they were terribly concerned about the child who had harmed their other child, the child who had thought it up and acted it out and trying to think about how to prevent them from winding up suffering all of the pain and indignities of the criminal justice system. What do we do in these cases that can actually be productive? How do we understand them moving forward? And how do we address the research gaps that leave us not always knowing entirely what to do? I know you'll want to hear as much as I do about how to improve your practice, support these families, and help these kids. Take a listen. Nina, welcome to One in Ten. Hi. How did you come to this research that you eventually did, this literature review, about sibling sexual abuse? What interested you in that? So I do want to say um, that I'm doing research not only on sibling sexual abuse, but also implications of any other form of child abuse and child maltreatment, basically. But um, I guess what brought me or us, me and Dr. Talman specifically to this topic was the more we read about it, um, the more we understood how scant the literature on this specific topic actually is. And, and it starts with that we don't even know um, what we call sibling sexual abuse. So, so there's not even a defined border like where does, does the appropriate sexual exploring like that is that, that everybody goes through during their, their youth end and, and where does the abuse start? So um, yeah, that was just very shocking to us when, when we read that. And um, I guess we understood how challenging that must make it for individuals who are exposed to sibling sexual abuse. If it's not even clear what it is, like when abusive parts start and yeah and and that sort of um causes that we don't know what its unique characteristics are so what it distinguishes um or how it, it's being distinguished from other forms of um, child abuse and child sexual abuse specifically and what the specific implications are on survivors so we just don't know that there's like no research on that like single studies and qualitative studies but not something that would provide compelling evidence and Another thing that we found really shocking while we did reading on this on this topic and that that made us feel like we should uh, really do more in in this area 
with their common beliefs that sibling sexual abuse isn't as severe as other forms of abuse. I don't know why that is, to be honest. Like, is it because it's committed by a child? And then that makes it some kind of more harmless for people? I don't know. Um, or is it just the disgust at the thought of something sexual abuse? Um, so I'm not sure, but the fact is that in society in general, this is a highly marginalized phenomenon and also in professional context. So um, there's quite some evidence showing that even if there is suspicion for sibling sexual abuse in like recorded cases or something like that, then professionals in social, social care and related fields would like close their eyes and just not um, trace this suspicion. So we sort of felt that this would be a, a thankful task to take on in research and also it seemed like part of your goal was to demystify this a little bit and to see yes. what actually existed. I mean, when I'm watching your body language and I'm hearing you talk, it seems to me that sort of shock and curiosity really drove maybe your interest in this. I mean, shock that no one had really paid adequate attention and they seem to be marginalizing the topic and also curiosity about what was really out there when you realized, when you started digging into research and you realized there was just kind of a dearth of research in comparison to other areas within child sexual abuse, which have been heavily researched. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much, yeah, that's it. I, I mean, like as a, as a personal reason, that pretty much nailed it. But yeah, I mean, from a professional perspective, there are certainly other questions that would be interesting, like if there are epidemiological or like in terms of biological manifestation, that would be interesting to ask. But from a personal point of view, as you summarized it, it's pretty much what, what I or what we were aiming for. Let me ask you something. You, you kind of started talking about in what ways this has been a neglected topic. I'm not asking you as so much as a researcher as I'm asking Nina this question, but why do you think that is? Do you think it's people's shock and disgust over the topic? Do you think that it's just because people find it hard to talk about? Do you think that it's some other reason? I mean, just what do you hypothesize to yourself when you're like, why haven't researchers delved into this before in depth? Why is that? I think it really starts with the fact that we don't have a definition of what it actually entails. So, so nobody, like not even professionals, not even we who are doing research in this field of child sexual abuse know what sibling sexual abuse is defined as. We just don't know it. And how should somebody in, in society, like in the general population, know what it is then and, and open their eyes and like trace a, a suspicion that they have when they see something, right? So I think that is a main reason um, other reasons might be the disgust at the thought, sure, probably. And as I said, many think that it's, it's, it's less severe if sexual abuse is committed by a sibling because they felt like, I, I don't know why, honestly, but um, that's a common belief. Other than that, I really don't know because it, it's so shocking because we know how severe and how consequential um, child sexual abuse is like in any way. And, and there's like, there's like decades of research, extensive research showing that, and it doesn't really fit to the way we, we've been handling sibling sexual abuse and research. And that's a really yeah. valuable point that, you know, there is, and the general public believes now the literature that says that 
child sexual abuse is harmful across the lifespan and that untreated child sexual abuse can lead to all kinds of negative life outcomes. So it is interesting that this is an area that we have not explored to the degree we have parental incest or other types of areas or extrafamilial abuse or other areas within child sexual abuse. I would even say there's growing attention on youth with problematic sexual behaviors, particularly in the U.S., and particularly, I would say, when it's someone outside the family. So let's say it's a neighbor kid and um, a younger child, or it's within a school setting or some of those things. Those have gotten a lot of attention here in the U.S., but I can't say that sibling sexual abuse as a subsection of that has gotten the same level of attention. I mean, here in the U.S., I would say it hasn't. And it was interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because of that, because of going, you know, as a professional myself who, you know, was a Children's Advocacy Center director two different times and saw many, many children, including many children that acted out sexually on other children. I mean, we certainly saw cases that involved siblings that was not infrequent at all. But I don't know if I really thought about it as a unique subset in the same way. And so I appreciated your research really highlighting that. What I'm wondering is in your study, you really reviewed 15 other studies in the end in depth that had about 14,000 individuals as a part of them. What did you find? What were your sort of key findings in looking at those studies collectively? I think the findings are quite twofold because First of all, we looked at specific characteristics of sibling sexual abuse, and there we found, like in all those papers, discussing that or mentioning that, that the average onset of sibling sexual abuse for most victims was um, about eight years, so pretty early. And then um, what's also interesting is that the, the perpetrating sibling um, tends to be quite older than the victim, so about four and a, and a half years older. And so we sort of understood um, how important like power relations or maybe even this dominating aspect is in sibling sexual abuse. And that was even more highlighted when uh, we saw that many papers actually talked about how much more extreme and more severe sibling sexual abuse is as compared to, for example, um, parent-child sexual abuse. So for example, actual penetration is more common among siblings in sibling sexual abuse. This high amount of force, not necessarily physical force, but force and manipulation and dominating um, that, that makes these dynamics this stressful and, and complicated. Yeah, so that also mirrored then in our second sort of big finding, which was on the implications of sibling sexual abuse. So we found that the most common outcome was depression. And there were even some studies that actually involved control groups, even control groups, including um, victims or survivors of other forms of sexual abuse. But they found a significant difference in the severities of depression um, for the survivors of sibling sexual abuse. So, so they, were, they, they suffered more from depressive symptoms as compared to other survivors of sibling sexual abuse, which highlights this point of its extreme severity and, and burden on survivors. Um, other outcomes that we 
specified was anxiety, lower self-esteem, which I think makes sense, like also in relation to uh, this high levels of depression and uh, poor sexual functioning. That was also something that we saw in survivors of sibling sexual abuse. And yeah, in terms of the characteristics, we also started to look into like characteristics of the families and try to identify um, risk factors for sibling sexual abuse, just because we thought this might be of high practical relevance, especially in social care. And we saw that sibling sexual abuse is more likely in large households that have um, more than three children. So that's definitely a risk factor. So for social workers to have in mind when they screen their cases. Um, also, it was a risk factor if the environment was generally unstable. So if parents had marital problems or mental problems of any kind, drug abuse, um, depression, even if parents um, had a history of childhood maltreatment themselves, that was a risk factor. And low income families were also the families that tended to be um, at higher risk for sibling sexual abuse to, to happen. Well, let's unpack these a little bit because that was a lot of findings right there, but I think all important. It seems to me the first set of findings around the frequency of the abuse, the age of the victims, the um, severity of the abuse, those things, that seems to me to kind of fly in the face of a lot of the common misperceptions and myths that people have about this. And I'm wondering what you, I mean, did you find that surprising as well? Did your findings align with your hypotheses going in? Or did you sort of look at this and say, you know, it's so interesting because people have been minimizing sibling sexual abuse. You know, it's just horseplay. It's playing doctor, you know, boys will be boys, these kinds of things. But then when you actually looked at it, it was a little bit, I mean, not a little bit, it is exactly a little bit shocking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, as I said, we never expected um, the outcomes or the severity to be any less severe than for other forms of ch- child sexual abuse. That's for sure. But I think we didn't expect like this shocking severity, like, as I said, penetration to be this common and, and much more common than when, when uh, in parent child abuse. That was something that was, at least to me, really shocking. And also the the length of time that this went on. I mean, that's always one of the findings that was very interesting to me is the duration of child sexual abuse. And if I'm remembering your finding correctly, it was not uncommon for it to be over a year. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Actually, for for most, for most of the exposed individuals, I think for 75%, it, it lasted for over a year. And that means like, not sometimes, but on a regular basis as part of their routine for more than a year for most of them. And this is just, yeah. You know, I wonder what conclusion you draw from that as it relates to the findings you found in terms of adult outcomes, mental health outcomes, because, you know, it's the severity of the abuse, the use of coercion. I mean, all of those things, it seems to me, sort of tend toward risk factors for poor mental health outcomes and poor well-being later on. And, and you find then these sort of highly depressed adults in many cases. Am I remembering your findings correctly that you also found some evidence that they were depressed more as children as well? 
Is that is that correct? There was this this tendency. So we, uh, we had five studies in children and ten in adults, and even the children have shown these tendencies towards higher depression as compared to individuals or children without um, any sexual abuse experiences. That is totally true. The reason why I just um, I, I think uh, mentioned the the findings in adults was that there were actually studies comparing other forms of sexual abuse and, and found higher levels of de- or higher severities of, of depression. But there was this tendency towards higher depression in children as well, and also towards higher anxiety in children. And that's, that's massive, because we know that this alone is so stressful and the risk factor for psychopathology in adulthood and many other things, even somatic diseases. And I realize that you haven't yet had a chance to research this further, but I'm wondering, you know, when you just think about it, what do you posit as the reason that both in kids and adults, you're seeing more depression, more anxiety, et cetera, than in other forms of child sexual abuse, knowing that all forms of child sexual abuse are harmful and can have these, um, these effects. I think it's hard to give an ultimate answer to this question just because there's so much we don't know about something sexual abuse. But one guess I'd be willing to make is that the the marginalization really is a risk factor in itself, not only for something sexual abuse to happen, but also for for it to, to be harder to overcome and to cope with in adulthood, just because it, it, it just makes it so much harder for, for victims to disclose what happened to them because there's basically no name for it. There's no definition for it. Then they suffer and there's these, these weird dynamics where they often are still in contact with the perpetrating sibling. It's part of the family. And there was this one uh, paper of um, Daphne Tanner where I think one, I think it was a girl a victim of sibling sexual abuse said um, something like, I, I loved him and I hated him. So, you know, there are these mixed feelings. This happened to her and he did this to her. Her brother did this to her. But there are also times when he did something nice for her and they had fun together. And I think that's just that just makes it so much harder and yeah, harder to disclose. And you sort of feel alone with, with this experience. And resulting feelings might be even more helplessness and shame. And, and that all we know are part of, of a depressive um, syndrome and um, might further drive um, the manifestation of, of such conditions. I mean, there's so many things here. One is that your sibling relationships are often the longest of your whole life, you know? And so you know that you are potentially going to have contact with this person. And as you say, it's very mixed. You may have many good experiences and then you have this other part of your life that's very misery making um, with the same person, which I think, you know, challenges many, many survivors. I'm also just thinking about the confusing messages that, kids may be getting within the family about this. Did you come across in your research, research about what happened at the point that kids disclose this? Or were most of the studies you reviewed really adults talking about their childhoods? And if so, did they cover kind of that disclosure process? Because I'm just wondering about how these things came to light in the first place. 
I think there's not that much out there on like specifically the way these things are being disclosed. And that's actually one aim of ours to do in, in future work. But I, I think that for children, it's what I, from what I read, it's it's much harder, even even harder to disclose because parents tend to close their eyes in front of these things happening under their shift, not because they want to or not because they, they have anything bad in mind. Don't get me wrong, but uh, just just because it's so, I don't know, weird and, and strange to them so that they find it easier not to deal with it at all and, and just just say, oh, well, that happened, but it's not going to happen again or that happens in any family or it was just like a you show me yours, I show you mine um, sort of thing. That is totally normal. So I think that is something that makes it super hard for children. And um, I haven't read of a, of a case report um, of like a, a person who disclosed sibling sexual abuse as a child. Um, as an adult, I think it is a little more easier if you can say that just because you are responsible for your own person. You are not dependent from your, I mean, um, mo most of the times older sibling who can like also physically dominate you. So I think that makes it easy, just having easier to, to just have this, this sort of uh, distance and, and being able to reflect on that. But even there in some of the qualitative articles that I've been reading, so when they were recruiting survivors of sibling sexual abuse, sometimes they they didn't even like even individuals in the control group, they, they didn't even know that this happened to them up until mm. the researchers told them what it is. And that's this is not normal. But they were saying something like, you know, we were watching TV on Sundays and we were watching that specific show. And then after that, that he would do it or she would do it to me. And, you know, they just they, they just weren't aware of, of this is not what other children experience or what what is the normative sort of right what sort of normal sexual behavior in children and what crosses that line into mm -hmm. sexually abusive behavior I can imagine that was very emotional for some of them he really sort of suddenly came to an awareness that they had been um, victims of sibling sexual abuse you know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking here in the U.S., because we have nearly a thousand children's advocacy centers that work with child sexual abuse victims every day, our centers do get children who disclose sibling sexual abuse as children, you know, not talking mm -hmm. about adult survivors. And that's not an infrequent occurrence that it happens. But I have such clear memories of those families that I worked with because it's such a hard thing. Parents feel very torn when it finally sinks in the seriousness of what happened to the child who was victimized and that it often is very serious behavior that's gone on a long time, just as you're describing it. They often feel extremely torn because, of course, they want the older child who's acting out to get help. And at the same time, they feel the sense of needing to protect the younger child and you know, I don't know that that's necessarily showing up in your research yet, but I would just say that that's one of the incredibly difficult dynamics of those families just from working with them firsthand is that they feel so torn and fraught in terms of their responsibilities as parents, really. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I can so imagine. Going back to your research for a moment, I want to talk about this sort of what the family dynamics are where you're seeing this more frequently. And 
you know, the one that I found most interesting, because we know that, you know, I can only refer to literature in the states I'm familiar with, but we know that there's literature that a chaotic family environment is one in which um, sexually acting out behavior can occur. So youth with problematic sexual behaviors here in the States, we understand that as coming from chaotic families often, not just ones where there's been abuse, but also all the other things you described. But I think this interesting thing about large families, families with more than three children, can you talk a little bit about that one? Because while I think there have been in the state some high profile cases of large families where, and even celebrity large families where this has come up, I think that people don't really think about that as a run of the mill, ordinary risk factor. That if you're looking at a family that has three, four, five, six children, that it's it could be an additional risk factor here. What is it about having a large family that places kids in this way, if there is going to be sibling sexual abuse at additional risk? And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that just sort of generally, if someone has more children, that it, you know, that's necessarily problematic. But why did that pop up as a risk factor, do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you just said, that it's not a standalone risk factor. And together with this like chaotic family environment, maybe even with some um, unstable um, parental emotional states, whatever, then as a combined like picture, it, it is a risk factor. And to be honest, I, I think that that's the only case where I can imagine that it would be indeed a risk factor if these many children and this, these big households really cause um, chaos and chaotic situations where parents might be overwhelmed, like one is working, the other one taking care of the kids and can't have their eyes anywhere. And then that adds to that chaos. And that's actually my only, the, the, the only process that I think would mediate this because in general, I mean, you you can't say that just have. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know why just having three or more children would be a risk factor, despite this additional chaos and and maybe overwhelming situations for, for the parents. So, and maybe so younger you, kids being looked after by older kids. I mean, I think that is common in larger families that older children have more responsibility for child rearing of younger siblings and therefore have more time alone with them, have more unsupervised time with them. Younger kids are, I think, also in large families often um, kind of taught that they need to listen to and obey older siblings almost as a surrogate parent. And it's just kind of, I'm wondering, you know, does any of that play a role in that, you know, it's interesting. My grandparents both came from very large families, 12 siblings, uh, on either side. And while to our knowledge, there's no history of child sexual abuse, there were lots of stories about older siblings, basically raising younger siblings, you know, I mean, mm. really having this very much enhanced parental role because of the sheer number of children. I can't imagine my great grandmother was able to pay attention to where 12 children were all the time and what they were doing. I just wonder, you know, to what extent that not saying that people typically have 12 children anymore, time has passed. Uh, since those days, but you ju- it does make you wonder, you know, kind of whether all of those factors are playing a role in addition to just sort of mental instability or other kinds of things you might see in the parents. Yeah. Yeah. When and I think another interesting question to yeah, raise here is, is just that what causes 
the older siblings that maybe raise or I don't know, supervise their younger siblings, what causes them to show behaviors of sibling sexual abuse? I think that's something that we understand even less than the victim side. Like, yes, what, what cause, like what family environment, what situations cause these kind of thoughts and these kind of behaviors in the older siblings? And, and I really don't have an answer for that. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to look at these. You're raising as many research questions as we're answering, which is good because there's certainly opportunity for further research. One of the things that we often see here in the U.S. with larger families is that often that also, and I'm not talking about three kids, but I'm talking truly larger families. It can also be associated with um, more closed communities. And so, you know, religious communities and other kinds of things. And it just makes me wonder, too, if sometimes these older siblings don't have a lot of same age friends, you know, like, are they primarily just within the family milieu or do they really have a lot of peer relationships that would be more um, age appropriate, more normal, those kinds of things? So, I mean, just lots to be curious about in terms of, as you say, what are the dynamics and risk factors that attend to older children acting out in this way. So speaking of research, where is your research taking you next? You know, is it something additional on this subject or are you off on other subjects entirely or both? Uh, It's both, I guess. There are a lot of things running um, simultaneously, but we did recently establish a large research group of of experts all around the globe. um, And we were planning to do a, massive multi-center studies at many centers at many uh, many locations around the globe for example for now we we have on board the u.s and germany and israel where we want to collect data and um yeah one aim of of this research is just to to have a community-based sample where we can answer these very burning epidemiological questions. So so how common is sibling sexual abuse actually in the general population and then in clinical populations and to answer sort of these epidemiological questions. And also, and and that's what you just talked about and that we would also want to investigate is um, what is the relationship to the perpetrating sibling. We have a, a large questionnaire assessing that. And I think that nobody has done that before. And that would reveal some valuable knowledge about like yes. what, what, what role this dominance actually plays and supervising role. And like, I think that's, that's very important. And that's part of this project. And um, besides, you know, these epidemiological questions uh, that we would like to answer, We also want to use a longitudinal design where we assess also outcomes of sibling sexual abuse. So um, any kinds of psychopathology, but also maybe as a second step, biological manifestations, and maybe even ask the question, how would these biological manifestations separate or are any different from the well-known biological manifestations of other forms of child sexual mm. abuse that we that we know of. Um, so that that would be an aim too. And also, like how or under under what circumstances is sibling sexual abuse especially detrimental? And under what maybe not not so much. So in other words, what are resilience factors in this context, and how can we strengthen resilience in this specific population? And all that 
for sure with this superior aim to reveal implications for interventions for these populations because there are none <laughs> and uh, I think that's that's a huge lack so that are, as our superior aim. That all sounds fascinating. I can't wait till the research is done and we can read that and you'll have to come back on the show and talk about it. But I'm also so curious about how this differs from other cases of youth with sexual behavior problems that are extra familial. So where you have a younger child and an older child and you have, you know, some of the same dynamics in terms of the use of force and coercion in some cases or other types of things. But how does it change the nature of all the factors you talked about when it's siblings, as opposed to the neighbor kid, the kid at school, the kid who's on your, you know, in the in the general neighborhood, those kinds of things. So I'm just I'll, I'll be very curious as to all of your findings. So is there anything that I should have asked you about and I didn't or anything else that you really want to make sure? Because our audience is a group of child abuse professionals. They work with these kids and cases every day. So is there anything else that you think you would want to share with them or, or that they should be particularly mindful about when they're working with these kids and families? So I think we've been talking about this professionally a lot now. Um, but as much as we're all professionals, we might still be parents or people who just have to do with children in their non-professional life. So a question that I'm on the one hand glad that you didn't ask because it's difficult is just what as a member of society, as a parent, whoever can we do to prevent sibling sexual abuse and to acknowledge it as a phenomenon. And um, yeah, I, I think I just wanted to use this opportunity to, to add this like closing statement to take on an, a more attentive and open perspective on this topic in, in any way, not only in your professional context. You know, if, if you see something, trace the suspicions. Better you trace it twice or, or one, one time too much than one time too little. So that's really something that I think is the first step to change. And yeah, just end this marginalization, make it easier for, for victims to disclose and to overcome what happened to them. And now that so many professionals are listening, I think it'd also be very helpful if we'd start establish some education resources for parents, just providing an open communication on this topic and trying to get sibling sexual abuse out of this dark corner where nobody cares about it put it out there and just try to make it as a facet of this umbrella term of child sexual abuse and a very eminent and detrimental risk factor and to acknowledge it as such. And really to acknowledge then the survivors of it as having survived an experience that is destigmatized and worth talking about. I think, you know, to your point, if we can't talk about it as a society, then we can't ask survivors really to come forward and talk about their experiences either. So thank you so much. I just really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom and your findings with us today. And we'll look forward to your research when it's done. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much. That was an amazing experience. Thank you for listening to One in 10. If you'd like more information about how to address problematic sexual behaviors in kids, whether that's with siblings or not, please visit our website at nationalchildrensalliance.org. And for more information about this episode and any of our others, 
please visit our podcast website at www.1in10podcast.org.